Hi, everybody. Kim is on a plane someplace towards the East Coast. She said she'd be on planes today. So it's just us. And I really miss her opening quote and setting the direction because I never know where to start. I have emotional factors. Oh, emotional factors. Somebody asked about that. The, I guess one place to start is sometimes it's not easy. So I have a patient here this week that is desperate. She's had post-herpetic neuralgia at T3, 4, 5, and 6 for two years. And I can quiet it down every place except for T3 while I'm treating her. And she got a custom care to see if it can be quiet when she's home in Atlanta. And I can't get it to settle down completely. She's 71. She's had it for two years. So those are two things that operate against post-herpetic neuralgia. So for those of you that haven't treated it before, PHN it happens when the virus attacks the nerve and damages it to the point where the nerve is hypersensitive and a constant pain generator. It's phantom limb pain, but worse, I think. Thoracic spine is usually straightforward. It's not usually that bad. The older the patient is, the less nerve growth factor they have. That's a thing. And the longer they've had it, the more difficult it is to treat. And she is so desperate. I'm her last hope. And rather than see the practitioners in Atlanta, she waited an extra seven or eight months and came here. And emotionally, it's really hard to not get hooked into her desperation. So that's for me. And for her, it's a matter of figuring out how to make it a management problem. T3 is quiet at night so she can sleep, but in the daytime, it's so hypersensitive that she has trouble wearing a shirt. So she's staying an extra day, Thursday and Friday, and every day I'm working on the scar tissue. So when you have PHN, post-herpetic neuralgia, you treat the nerve for inflammation, increasing secretions. Horn and broken. I've done necrosis 54 and 124, 94, all of that. And neck to feet, we have 40 and 10, quiet spinal cord sensitization, 40 and 89. So, what if it is like phantom limb pain? So, quiet the central sensitization, and I can get it. Everything quiet except for T3. T3 is just right across the top. She's had breast cancer, four breast implant surgeries, and the scar 
from the implant runs right across T3. Maybe that's part of it. When we talk about post-herpetic neuralgia, I say it's not simple, but it's not easy on you or the patient when it's not simple, especially when they're as desperate as this patient is. And she has a wonderful life. She loves to travel. She's hilarious. She's just adorable. And I will keep trying until Friday. We'll see what happens. Leaf, the question is, so this is the bus you guys drive, 534 and 528. I haven't tried 534. Alf, I did try 528. I don't remember what 534 is. It's a solfeggio, right? So leave the post-chemo peripheral neuropathies. We do pretty well with Vincristin and that category. The platinum-based chemotherapy agents we have trouble with because they destroy the DNA in the nerve. So there you go. We, I did run the shingles frequencies. The constitutional factors for PHN shingles is limbic system. I've never had much luck with that one. I always use midbrain, 89. 534 is the limbic system. Okay, when I get a chance. Three years of insomnia, has tried lots of meds, zombie most of the days. Some better with anxiety and treating 89. So anybody with insomnia, I check for vestibular injuries. I'm finding them everywhere, especially with insomnia. And then what kind of insomnia? Can't go to sleep, can't stay asleep, and sleep apnea. Those are the three. So find out, can't go to sleep, can't stay asleep. Check for vestibular injuries. So the fields of gaze, does his eye bounce? Tuny fork in the middle of the forehead. Can you hear it in one ear, but not the other ear? And lots of meds, zombie most of the day. Not sleeping is a thing. I try that one. Check for vestibular injuries, check for sleep apnea, and find out when the insomnia started. That's the other thing. I found out from a patient, actually, that in males, difficulty with sleep or the inability to sleep is related to lower levels of testosterone. So salivary cortisol, to find out what his evening cortisol is, and testosterone. So if his testosterone is low, Sometimes that's a problem if the cortisol is high. It'll interfere with testosterone conversion to the active form. So look for testosterone binding factor. So this one's from Kathleen, and she's a physical therapist. So you're going to have to work with him and his GP. So send him back to his GP with a note that says, please check testosterone levels. That's a tough one. Sleep is so complicated. I have a patient with an autoimmune disease and her functional medicine internist put her on 250 milligrams of melatonin topical with DMSO as a carrier internal. 
that's a thought. I'm not sure how many people would try that. Okay, Vicky. Hi, Vicky. Patient is 71-year-old male, overweight, type 2 diabetic, high blood pressure. Yuck. Okay, difficult. Had soldier surly fix a previous shoulder replacement that failed. They did a reverse, six and a half hours long. It's believed that the strap that holds the patients during surgery was too tight for too long. Patch of hair loss on the back of his head. Halo effect on the top of his head that's sensitive. Bad headaches. It sounds like the C2 nerve root. Unable to drive or be effective at work because of the pain. Four months out of surgery. Laser would set off his pain. Manual traction seems to give short now. Check the check the sensation at C2. And when you treat the C2 nerve root, you put a contact around the neck. So positive leads at the neck. Negative leads across the top of the head. So the C2 nerve root comes up the back of the head and stops basically between the ears, the occipital branch of the um, trigeminal nerve takes over from the front half. And you do 40 and 396, 81 and 396. It's the manual traction what gives short-lived relief because it'll pull the occiputin C1 off of the occipital nerve. So basically what you're dealing with is occipital neuritis. Nerve pain is usually fairly straightforward. The strap that holds the patient's head was too tight and on for too long. So basically you have a hypoxic injury to the C2 nerve root. So I would try and polarize a positive and probably I would say 200 micrograms. And start with 40 and 396 and maybe 81 and 396. So the question is whether or not, whether the nerve is numb and painful, at which point 81 is probably your friend, or whether it's hypersensitive and painful, at which point 40 is your friend. So you will end up using both probably. I usually start with 40 and 396 and just polarize a positive neck to the top of the head. And the current follows fascial planes. So the only way to get current into the brain is to put the contacts in the ears, right? So treat up the back of the head. I, it's, like any kind of nerve pain, it's usually not that small tumor on the seventh nerve. It began sleep deprivation. The sleep problems began when he sold his private practice. That's interesting. Tumor on the seventh nerve, that facial nerve, it's right. kind of depends on where the tumor is, Kathleen. Is it near the auditory nerve. So the seventh and eighth nerve come through the same hole basically in the skull and they travel right next to each other. Is the 
tumor affecting the auditory nerve, which is also the vestibular nerve. And maybe explore what happened when he sold his private practice. Beginning of Parkinson's, find out if he's on statins. Given that history, it's very likely he's on statins. And the Parkinson's gets better when you put them on CoQ10. Tumor on the seventh nerve. I'd see if you can try the tuning fork thing and see if he has vestibular issues. And then in the core, there's that section of the core is expanded into how to manage vestibular issues, pillows in the front, pillows in the back. Um, so you have proprioception. Sold his private practice beginning of Parkinson's. Parkinson's is in the substantia nigra, which is just superior to the medulla, and the medulla regulates sleep. I have to wonder if those two were related. I wonder what else happened when he sold his private practice. That's interesting. The Parkinson's is easy to treat at the beginning. So it's lipoic acid, CoQ10, essential fatty acids, but lipoic acid, CoQ10, and phosphatidylcholine. That's the other one, those three. And if you look at Roger Billica's molecules of behavior and look up dopamine, but small tumor on the seventh nerve I'd get curious about where the tumor is and whether or not it's influencing the eighth nerve. And that would influence vestibular issues. Glad he doesn't have sleep apnea. What did he start doing? It's always in the history. What did he start doing that was different after he sold his private practice? Where did he hang out? Is he staying at home? Maybe you can get somebody to test him for mold. Real-time labs is the one that I use. They have a urine mold test. It's about $300, but it's nice to know what it's not. Concussion in Vegas. Sleep is tricky. I guess it depends on what they treat. Okay. Well, that's the best I can do with that putting my hands on, but that's what I would suggest. Get rid of the Parkinson's, that's straightforward. Check the eighth nerve. Find out what he started doing when he sold his private practice. Is there mold? Is when exactly? And then did it start? And then what did he do differently? when he wasn't in practice and he was at home. That's my best guess. C2 is easier. Sleep is really complicated. High-dose melatonin, you could try that. Zombie, of course, he's a zombie most of the day if he's not sleeping at night. Treating 89. Concussion in Vegas is also something else to try. Okay. Joy. Hi. That's a great first name. You're a nurse, yay, someone new to the FSM community, welcome. 
opening a clinic for IV nutritional therapy, red light therapy, yay, and have a demand for FSM. Yes, they will come find you. Wondering more about the 510K certification on devices? Oh, absolutely. Yes, they, all of our stuff has 510Ks. They're all made in the U.S. They go well beyond. You can get a 510K on something you make in your garage. It's just not that hard. ISO certification, ours have ISO, I think it's 16601 and 1345, although I think 16601 has been replaced by something whose name I can't remember. And we have a CE mark. We're approved for import into Canada, Taiwan, Australia, the UK, Ireland, pretty much every place except Germany. Can I lay a person to self-administer? Okay, this is where I draw the line because you're an RN, you understand medicine, differential diagnosis, and physical exams, right? When you give a patient a custom care, you program it for them and the way the software is now, you can reprogram it at a distance, reprogram it by way of computer. They have to have a PC with all of the Windows updates done. You change their prescription on your PC, send them the patient software. I have Danielle do it for me, but she can tell you how to do it. I'm just lazy. I let her do it because she's so good at it. But the directions are fairly straightforward. It's all in an email that she sends that has the patient software in it. You email the patient the software. You email the patient something or other file. And the patient just programs their custom care. So when you sell the custom care to them for whatever you sell it for, you also sell them the programming cable. So I think my clinic charges $90 for them, something like that. But no, a layperson can't self-administer FSM with proper training. Why is that? Okay, so let's say the patient has a complaint of low back pain. Now, in our world, you ask the question, so we have a program that says low back pain, and it treats both discs and facets. In a perfect world, you ask the question, is the pain worse when you lean back or is it worse when you lean forward? That tells you whether to focus on the disc or the facet. But if the pain doesn't change when you lean back or lean forward, that is a big red flag. Okay? That means it's not mechanical. It's not facets, it's not discs. If it's muscles, then the pain is constant and could be the psoas referring. You have to do a physical exam to find that out. But I had a patient with low back pain and that was her complaint. She didn't have any trigger points in her psoas. It wasn't any different when she leaned forward or leaned back. And her MD had her on Tylenol 3 for I think two or three months. And I treated her once or twice and it didn't change. 
and sent her back to her MD. He said, no, just keep taking your Tylenol 3 for another month. Then I sent him a note and said, she is 67 years old, has an intact uterus, has a family history of cardiovascular disease. So the things you need to rule out are aortic aneurysm, uterine cancer, colon cancer, all of which refer to the low back. And the, the words I used that got him to do something were that my medical legal position would be more secure if we had clarity about what was causing her low back pain. About four to six weeks later, she came in and she said, I think you saved my life because I had lymphoma. And the back pain was coming from inflamed lymph nodes. So that's why you don't let patients treat themselves. You can put things on there for common cold, sprain, strain, shingles, fractures, back pain, neck pain, liver support, the flu. You can put on a custom care, usually put the top five or six things that they need in the first top five or six places. But I'll put about 20 programs on when I have a patient that I'm going to turn loose and just have them keep in touch with me. So you can do your visits by video that way and just check in with them. Even though they bought it, you can set the software to expire every six to 12 months so that they have to come in and check in with you. So you know that when you get a prescription from your MD, that prescription expires. Like you have to go back and see your doctor once a year to get a prescription for the same medication. Some meds, it's every six months. So it's the same thing with FSM. It's a medical device in the way we use it. It's not an over-the-counter device. So that's what makes me nervous is the things that we can't or should not treat. So there you go. And Joy, if the leads are placed in a foot bath and then the clients place their feet in the water, is this as effective as wet claws? The leads have to go someplace. I guess you could put both the positive and negative leads in the foot bath if you're doing one of those little ion foot baths. There's no data on it. We haven't any data on anybody that was treated this way. Everybody that we have data on was treated with the contacts on their body. So like the 40 and 10 patients were treated on the body. Pancreatitis patients are treated with either the converter or the contacts on their body. I put the leads in the water when I take a hot bath or in the hot tubs. So there's that. ALF. New research shows some cases are associated with pesticide exposure. I'm assuming you mean Parkinson's. There's that PBS special called the Frozen Addict, and they make a very good case in that special about patients with Parkinson's in the province of Ontario, I'm pretty sure it was. And 95 out of 100, let's say 95% of them, were exposed to 
herbicides or pesticides on a farm. And the other 5% were living in the city, but they were raised on a farm. So every Parkinson's patient gets, that's just part of the Parkinson's protocol, is 57, 900, 920. And inorganic toxins all in, and I find the basal ganglia to be more effective. I think it's 988 basal ganglia to be more effective than the frequency for the substantia nigra. I've just never had it work. Treating Parkinson's and getting the symptoms down for a period of time has always been easy, especially in the early and middle stages, even one or two advanced cases. Getting it to last, they're going to need a home unit. So there's that. Oh, by the way, the patient with pretty advanced MS is uh, someone donated a custom care to him and he's using it on a regular basis and he continues to stand. He's got a stand, somebody donated a standing um, wheelchair for him and his care team, he's stood up about 21 times. He sent me a video today. He's pretty excited just to get vertical has been exciting to him. Okay, Alf, disrelated side note, while we specialize in that, a few of the patients with Chiari are getting some relief with congestion, the spinal fluid. Yeah, the Chiari syndrome, an awful lot of them have also Ehlers-Danlos. And the thing that I've treated in this group is obviously the Ehlers-Danlos 124 and 77, torn and broken in the connective tissue, but also scarring in the dura. So if you think about what happens with tethered cord down at the bottom and pulling the cerebellum down into the foramen magnum, which is larger than it should be, scarring in the spinal cord, scarring in the dura that pulls everything down, that seems to be helpful. And congestion in the spinal fluid makes perfect sense. And then I'd still try scarring in the meninges, the dura, the pia, the arachnoid, and I always remember the Dura because I treat it so much, but the P and the arachnoid would be worth treating, treating scarring that with the contacts at the neck and the sacrum and having the patient move while you're running that. By the way, strangest case I have seen in forever. Patient comes in, he's 60 years old and says that he's had this pain in his head and diagnosed as chronic fatigue, but pain, like thalamic pain that starts in his head, rated a six or a seven, starting when he was maybe three, and then 13 is when it got really bad, but he still participated in sports in high school and college, got a job, got married, had a kid, got divorced, and left his job when he was 50-something, and now he's 60. And he has this complaint of pain in his head. And his history is like a, a flea in a hot rock. It's tangential at best. And 
then someplace in the middle of this scattered history, he mentions that when he was 18 months old, his dad was a doctor in Laos, and they found him on the bottom of the swimming pool, purple, and pulled him out, resuscitated him, and he's had this strange set of symptoms ever since. Now, his speech was somewhat slurred. His physical movements were discoordinated, like his coordination was not great. And his speech was off. And then he mentions this hypoxic brain injury, an 18-month-old that's purple is not getting any oxygen to the brain and who knows how long he was on the bottom of the pool. I treated 40 and 89, quiet, like what you do for thalamic pain and pain in his head went away. And then he said, yeah, but my body feels tight. So I did increased secretions in the spinal cord, increased secretions in the sensory cortex his speech cleared up, his face cleared up. I did inflammation in the frontal lobe and everything settled down. And then he came back about two days later to pick up his custom care. And he said, he kept saying, I feel tight right here. And he's done a lot of spiritual work. He said, right here in my third eye, I feel really tight right here. And for those of you that are listening, my fingers are up at the bridge of my nose in between my eyebrows. What else is up there at the bridge of the nose, at the base of the skull, brain, the base of the brain in between your eyebrows? The dura. We did yesterday, we did scarring in the dura with the contacts at his neck and his feet. and had him take a breath in, hold it, bear down, expand, and that increases intracranial pressure. And the pain in between his eyebrows got better, but then it felt here on the sides. We did a little cranial adjusting while he's running 13 in the dura. And this funny, tight feeling in his skull went away. It was so cool. He said, I have been everywhere and seen everybody and nobody has even thought of this. And I said, well, I don't have a way to treat it. That was fun. And I had no idea what was wrong with him. And I didn't know if it was going to work. Pain in my head and his body pain manifested as fatigue. Okay, anonymous attendee, whoever anonymous is in Hawaii, aloha. Any suggestions on what to use to calm down an 87-year-old Alzheimer's patient running TTH? Nope. 970s? Nope. PTSD? Nope. Concussion in Vegas is probably your best bet with an Alzheimer's patient in the advanced from last year, and I'm going to put it in this year as well. There's a protocol I put together, experimental, 
a thought experiment for Alzheimer's, for the plaque, for necrosis, degeneration, calcium, inflammation, all of that stuff in the cortex and the midbrain. And it's mostly a midbrain thing. So the aggression comes as the limbic system just gets dysregulated. So I would stick to concussion in Vegas. And when you run 40 and 89, so in the regular concussion in Vegas, quieting the midbrain, inflammation in the midbrain runs four minutes. I would increase that to 10 or 12 minutes to quiet the midbrain. And then it's interesting about the vagus carries information from the body up to the midbrain and says, dude, we're fine down here. So we can quiet down the midbrain. But then if you turn on the vagus, increase secretions in the vagus, it increases the signal from the body to the brain that says, hey, we're fine. It's okay. Chill. And vagal nerve stimulators are approved for Alzheimer's. It's one of the indications for a vagal nerve stimulator. So look at the Vegas webinar and get to the part. I think there's one slide on the Vegas and Alzheimer's. But then look at the advanced slides from 2023 and I think even 2022. And that protocol for Alzheimer's, it's a thought experiment, but it actually made sense. The aggressiveness just comes as the limbic system degenerates in the midbrain. So the limbic system is the amygdala, the hippocampus, and the thalamus. In our world, they're all 89, even though we have experimental frequencies for each part. The combination of degeneration in the emotional centers makes the emotions more explosive. And the hippocampus has less ability to suppress it. So as the midbrain gets more degenerated, the aggression and the emotional intensity increases and the cortex has less ability to suppress signals from the midbrain. So there's a a constant communication between the two that just in there as the cortex gets all kind of plaque and goes away. So I, if I had to guess, I would save time by running just concussion in Vegas and increase the amount of time on 40 and 89 and 81 and 109 increased secretions and vitality in the Vegas might need if it works in the office and quiets him down for 24 to 48 hours, if it holds that long, I'd see if they can do a custom care or a custom care and a converter. It's scary. Alf used the original ion foot bath for 25 years, would not mix the two at the same time. Okay. Yeah, I've never used the ion foot bath. It's never made much sense to me, but lots of people have. Take your word for it. You might use the ion foot bath 
for the feet and then put the custom care at the neck and the abdomen or back and front and see. All right. Michelle, currently doing neurofeedback for brain coherence for my 16-year-old. Wanted to see what your recommendation for ADHD in kids as well as adults. Crown devices. Crown devices. Wondering if anything. I don't know what a crown device is. Dave Burke has an ADD and ADHD program that's basically the depression protocol. Works on the midbrain and prefrontal cortex. And we know from Alicia Thomas that the frequency for the prefrontal cortex is correct. So there's that. Yes, Michelle, is there a spectrum of Ehlers-Danlos? Definitely. There's got to be, I think, four or five genes involved in Ehlers-Danlos. There's simple like the first level is HSD, hypermobility syndrome. The worst, and then there's the thumb to wrist, little finger up. So there's the bait and score. So can you put your thumb on your forearm? Can you take your little finger and raise it to 90 or 95 degrees? If you put your arm out, does your elbow go backwards by a three to five degrees knees when you stand up straight and lock your knees you measure it and if they go backwards three to ten degrees that's a positive on the baton score and then they lean forward and put their both hands on the floor so there's nine baton points the really severe ehlers those patients have difficulties Cardiac valves, teeth, gums, their skin is really stretchy. That's like they can take the skin on the back of their arm and pull it up about four or five inches instead of what most of us, it's an inch. Any place on the spectrum, if somebody has Ehlers-Danlos, they will always have vagal nerve dysfunction. And when the vagus is off, how do I put that? Let's go back. Those two webinars, the Ehlers-Danlos and the Vegas, work together. Everybody with Ehlers-Danlos, when they stand up, the connective tissue that is super stretchy is also the connective tissue in the disc annulus, in the dura, but in the basement membrane in their digestive system. So they ate breakfast and they stand up with a pound of food in their stomach and the weight of the food in their stomach pulls on the esophagus and the digestive system in general. And the vagus nerve is attached to the esophagus and the stomach. So they stand up and they get a vagus nerve traction injury. So when the vagus nerve gets a traction injury, it tells the brain there's something wrong here. People with Ehlers-Danlos always have little bits of injured tissue because the connective tissue is always having little injuries. 
the vagus is turned down, never off, but down by infection, stress, and trauma. And trauma is communicated by little pieces of connective tissue that float by these receptors. And the vagus picks up those little, they're called damps, damage-associated molecular patterns. And the vagus picks those up, tells the brain, hey, she's got an injury. He's got an injury. The brain turns around and tells the vagus to quiet down. And what does that do? When the vagus is quiet, you have anxiety and depression. You have a tendency towards POTS, autonomic dysfunction, digestive disturbances, immune system dysfunction. And when the midbrain is jacked up, is the medical term, when the midbrain is told that there's an emergency, it affects the cortex. So that whole neurologic section of the advanced the midbrain, in the brain, everything's connected to everything. So the vagus tells the midbrain there's a problem. The midbrain gets on high alert, and that interferes with higher level cortical functioning. If the Ehlers Danlos patient also has ADD, the solution may be to treat the Ehlers Danlos and treat the vagus. And treat the midbrain. I'm just saying it's worth a try. But those two webinars, I could go back and redo them, but Ehlers Danlos and the Vegas, once you see them, you can't ever unsee them. So almost everybody that comes in with a chronic neck or back problem, I check them for Ehlers Danlos. We do the bait and score. The first thing we do is the little finger and does it stop at 70 or does it go to 95? And if they have Ehlers Danlos, they will automatically have vagal nerve dysfunction and all that goes with that. So I hope that helps, Michelle. All right, DNA. Will sleeping on a grounding mat interfere with FSM? I wouldn't think so, no. I think it actually helps. Some people connect the leads from the custom care to their grounding mat. I'm not sure how well that works, but it doesn't interfere with FSM. Cheryl, I have two granddaughters that have been diagnosed with PCOS or things. They can't get pregnant. Nope. Too much testosterone. Yep. Yeah. There is a, a protocol for polycystic ovaries. And it's a syndrome. It all goes together. The ovaries make cysts instead of a corpus luteum. So the corpus luteum happens when you spit the egg out. And then the place where the egg was, the follicle turns into the corpus luteum and it secretes progesterone. And since they don't make a corpus luteum, they just make a cyst. They don't get progesterone. And for some reason, I just know that it all goes together. 
their testosterone levels are too high, they have metabolic syndrome. And so they are generally overweight and their liver turns estrogen or DHEA or whatever into testosterone. So when you're treating PCOS, you treat the ovaries, you treat insulin resistance. So insulin and leptin resistance, you treat the ovaries. And because they have ovarian cysts that have ruptured, they're going to have um, scar tissue down around the ovaries and the tubes. So you're going to treat the scar tissue around the ovaries and the tubes to clear up some of the abdominal pain. PCOS, metabolic syndrome, which is insulin and leptin resistance, and treat the liver and try and talk the liver into making DHEA and estrogen into something besides testosterone. So the liver gets to decide what your hormones turn into. I'm always curious about the chemistry in the liver, and I'd have to look this up, but my first suspicion is usually an inability to phosphorylate B6. I'm just guessing, because if you can't phosphorylate B6, you can't get to an anti-inflammatory pathway. And I suspect that has something to do with it, but you'd have to look it up. And this one, I don't see a lot. I saw it a lot in the 90s and early 2000s, but I haven't seen a case in years. And we used to have a, there might even still be in the core or in the advanced uh, protocol for PCOS. Treat the ovary for scarring. Cystic condition doesn't do much, but treat the ovary for scarring and cystic condition and the basics for the ovary. Treat the liver support. Treat insulin and leptin resistance. And this is an ongoing thing. It's not a one-visit fix. It's not like you're going to treating the scar tissue around the ovary and the tube is going to be an issue. Oh, it's Mary in Hawaii. Hi, Mary. Okay, let's see. Joy, I'm glad that answered the question. Phosphorylation, intestinal inflammation, similar to fistulas and Crohn's. I'm, a, I'm not sure who DNA is, but are we talking about the PCOS? The intestinal inflammation in PCOS is caused by the, I think, it's caused by the scar tissue that's created from the ruptured ovarian cysts. And it's a matter of taking the scar tissue down and intestinal inflammation is, it, it's all part of the um, insulin and leptin resistance and uh, ruptured ovarian cysts. And if you can't phosphorylate B6, you end up going down an inflammatory pathway. Oh, hi, John. Here we go. No, 
Yeah, I just found you. I got it in the chat. Here you go. Now I moved up. All right. So yes, with phosphorylation, B6 is your friend. My new clients, this is from John Miser. Hi. Oh, by the way, John, I got my Patty card and I just booked a trip to Cozumel between Christmas and New Year's to go diving. I'm so excited. Um, so I recertified last weekend. My new client's son wrote to me today, born in, so he's 21, Okinawa, cancer diagnosed, non-Hodgkin's teosolophoma, treated with chemo, itching for two years as a side effect of the bone marrow transplant. Yep. Yeah. When you get a bone marrow transplant, if you think about what goes on in the bone marrow, same thing with blood transfusions, actually. I got a friend that was never allergic to anything. She needed a blood transfusion, seven units. And um, all of a sudden, she had seasonal allergies. So bone marrow is immune active and the question is the itching being caused by the chemotherapy or is it being caused by the bone marrow transplant steroids what about benadryl goal is to create a detox protocol from the chemo right so the tissues for some of the skin where he had the transplant and where the chemo was directed. Non-Hodgkin's lymphoma is in the white blood cells, which is why you need a bone marrow transplant. And the itching is, remember that slide that I think is in one of the webinars, or maybe it's in the advanced, how do you scratch when you itch? And there's a special nerve called a proreceptor. It's a nerve that just tells you when something itches. And it goes up the nerve to the spinal cord, to the brain. And there's opiate receptors in the brainstem that produce suppression. And the things that stimulate these itching nerves. I can spell it P-R-U, receptor. Those nerves are stimulated by histamine and inflammation. The chemo might be what damaged the nerve, but... See if allergy reaction in the skin, allergy reaction in the nerves. So histamine, nine in the skin, nine in the nerves, 40 in the skin, 40 in the nerves. And the immune system, and it really depends on what kind of chemo they used. So the question, is it the chemo that's causing the itching or is it the bone marrow transplant? Did he acquire an allergy from the bone marrow 
that he didn't have before. Oh, there we go. Yeah, graft versus host disease in the bone marrow transplant, hyperimmune. So Sylvie's right. This is what she does for a living. Bye, Kathleen. Have a good choir rehearsal. Graft versus host disease. Yeah, that's what I thought. It's related to the bone marrow transplant. So the question is, Sylvie, is it safe to treat the bone marrow? We have a frequency for it, 238. That's a thought. Yeah, you're in uncharted territory, John. Same thing, Alf. The body can make antibodies to any tissue that the transplant needle went through. Okay, I see what you mean. But the bone marrow makes immune system cells. Yeah, beats me too. I guess you could try treating the bone marrow for toxicity and allergy reaction. I have one patient that has elevated platelets and we tried treating her bone marrow and that didn't do anything. Isn't it amazing the kinds of patients that we get? We're like the court of last resort. So something that's easy, like the C2 neuritis or a thalamic pain, it's easy for us. Those two are easy. PCOS is more complicated, but it's still doable. It's just not a one-visit fix. And there we go. It's four o'clock already. Wow. Time flies when you're having fun. And I, this is the thing that Kim is really good at that I haven't mastered yet, and that is finding an ending quote. It's the job of the physician to hold the vision of the patient as healed until the patient can see it for themselves. I like that quote. So we can hold the vision and hope for the best. Think it through. Start with the history. Do some sort of physical. Do good things. Change lives. And then we change the world. You guys take care. I'll see you next week. Bye. The Frequency Specific Microcurrent Podcast has been produced by Frequency Specific Seminars for entertainment, educational, and information purposes only. The information and opinion provided in the podcast are not medical advice, do not create any type of doctor-patient relationship, and unless expressly stated, do not reflect the opinions of its affiliates, subsidiaries, or sponsors, or the hosts, or any of the podcast guests or affiliated professional organizations. No person should act or refrain from acting on the basis of the content provided in any podcast without first seeking appropriate medical advice and counseling. No information provided in any podcast should be used as a substitute for personalized medical advice and counseling. FSS expressly disclaims any and all liability relating to any actions taken or not taken based on or any contents of this podcast.